Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Hello, listeners. Hello, Troy. I've got something on my mind. I've got something I've been thinking about, and I I think this is the episode to bring it up. But I don't know what it is about New York City, but for some reason, so many movies, and especially so many horror series, choose to, to make New York an aspect of their pitch, of their product, of what they're focusing on. And it's always like brought up in the title or the marketing material. Um, But so many times over and over, we've seen New York done and not done right. Uh, And luckily, one thing I'll say about the title that we're covering today is it's a movie that I didn't even know was set in New York. But I think this film single-handedly captures New York better than almost any other (laughs) horror movie I've ever seen, and I don't even think it's really necessarily trying to. It just naturally does it. So I don't know, what is it about New York City, Troy, that you think inspires filmmakers to go there, and especially, you know, horror filmmakers, to want to root their stories within New York? Gosh, Roger, it's it, you've been to New York. You, you, you lived really close to New York for a while, right? Oh, yeah. I was like an hour away. It was wonderful. Yeah. So New York, to me, I, I love the city. Um, there's an electricity about New York. Uh, it it's really is a world-class city. So I think that just the appeal to get a, get a horror villain or get somebody in New York where things are so recognizable. You got, you know, you got, uh, Central Park, you got the Empire State Building, you got the, the, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge, you got all these just iconic iconic locations in New York that uh, you know, Times Square, which this film does an amazing job of capturing the seediness of Times Square in the early 80s. I mean, I think all these iconic images in a filmmaker's mind are like, wow, what if I took my my, my horror character or what if I took my established villain? Because we have seen Jason in New York, quote unquote, Toronto, but whatever. Uh, we've seen Ghostface most recently go to New York. I, I just think that there's this um, this appeal allure that New York city has because of its iconicness that it just lends itself to wanting to see these, these horror villains run rampant throughout the city. But on the flip side of that, New York also, I think has a reputation for being a kind of a, a city where people mainly, I don't want to say are, are rude, but kind of keep to themselves. You know, people people are going at a busy pace, so a lot of times they don't know what's going on around them. Um, me being a true crime buff, uh, there's that very, very, very famous case of the Kitty Genovese story. Have you heard of that, Roger? I have not. No, please enlighten me. Yes, I'm going to because I think it does play into why people want to see horror in New York. Uh, it, it took place in the late 50s, early 60s, I believe. Basically, this woman was brutally, brutally, brutally stabbed to death for a, for a span of what lasted over an hour uh, outside of her apartment in New York City. And she screamed. All the neighbors heard. Um, not one of them called the police. Um, it's kind of like that 
that bystander effect we hear about. Nobody wanted to get involved. And I think when you think about New York as a city and people le- le- leaving, uh, leading their busy daily lives oblivious to what's going on around them, that leads them to being oblivious to the different horrors that are going around them as well. So I think you can set a, a very, um, you can set a, a horror film in New York where a lot of horrifying things happen. And because people are so self indulgent in their daily lives, they're not aware of what's of all the horror that's going around them. And I think that's also very well illustrated in this film we're going to discuss today, right? Oh, gosh, what a first of all, what an eloquent and well spoken answer. I didn't know I was opening up that can of worms. But my God, I feel like you've been working on that answer for months. That sounded great. Um, But yeah, I mean, wow, really valid point. And another thing kind of building off what you just said is, because of New York, because it's electric, because it's so congested, so many people living on top of each other, there is a standoffish element uh, to New York. You know, we're almost like you said, you keep to yourself. You're not necessarily going out in the crowds looking to meet people. You're kind of existing in your own personal bubble, and it creates a lot of really strong personalities, big personalities. And that's another thing you see in this film that we're about to cover are the kind of characters that exist within the annals of grungy, gritty city life of New York. Uh, and this movie does that really well, and I really think it's one of the most enjoyable aspects of it. Um, I mean, among others, but I really, really like that this film does what some of the other films I think tried to do, and which is just give a great depiction of this grungy, just really just impoverished, just get doing what you can to get by. You've got hookers, you've got, you know, old women who are on the verge of dementia, like that one broad, we're going to meet Josephine. And, and it's just like these really wild characters that have all have really interesting backstories, I'm sure. Uh, do we get to see all of them? No. But do I enjoy being amongst them in this film? Yes. It gives this film a, a lot of character and elements of life that help get through some otherwise very indie elements to this movie. But boy, oh boy, what a personality does this film have, huh? Yes, and I, I, I really, really uh, enjoy some of the uh, secondary characters in this film to the point where I really would love to learn more about them. Um, and I think that's another thing about New York City itself is how many people have followed their dreams to New York because they're going to be a famous you know, Broadway actor or actress, or they're going to be, you know, um, one of the Rockettes, you know, they, they flee to New York for, for it, for a, a grand dream. And it ends up obviously not working out because they're just one of the thousands of people monthly that are going to New York for that same reason. So I think this film also gives me some, some of these characters where I'm like, wow, I really want to know the backstory of this character, how they ended up where they're at. And I enjoy some of the secondary characters almost more than I enjoy the, the protagonist or the anti, uh, what do you want to call him? What do you want to call Dwayne? Anti hero? I don't know. But yeah, this film just creates a, a, a an atmosphere that is that's grimy, but is also just so enthralling. And it, it's it's crazy that it did it on such a small, small, small budget. If you haven't figured it out yet, guys, we are talking about Frank Henenlotter's 1982 cult classic, Basket Case. What a good call on your end, Troy, picking this one. Because I'm going to tell you, um, I, I don't think I, I disclosed this before just now, so I'm going to spring it on you. I've never seen this movie before. Um, <sighs> How have you never seen Basket Case? Well, I, you know, it's always been on my radar because you know I love a good practical effect, but it just, it just never has come up. And I think that's a, a thing common with a lot of 
fans of the genre, there's always like one or two movies where you're like, I've been meaning to watch it, I've been meaning to watch it, and I've not got around to it. And so when you suggested this, I, re I consciously made the choice to not tell you. Um, because yeah, I, I, I knew so much about this movie without have never having seen it. I knew all the classic stills, the gags, the moments, what it's known for, that fucking blob creature that we're going to talk about with those <laughs> teeth and those eyes, those dead soulless eyes. Um, I can't wait to talk about it. But yeah, it was a first time experience for me. So this is going to be an exciting chat. Oh, well, I'm glad I broke your basket, Cherry Roger, because this is a film I do think every horror fan needs to see. Like if I could write a, uh, if I could write a book, yeah, you know, yeah, about 1,000 or five, I don't know, 500 films horror. 500 horror films every fan should see this would definitely be there um because of several reasons but gosh what they accomplished on the budget that supposedly this film had which was about thirty five thousand dollars in 1980 you know 1980 1981 is astonishing uh, just looking at it from a piece of indie low budget filmmaking and what they were able to do is is reason enough to see the film but then yeah you're right I, I i think that you don't even have to have seen the film to to recognize so many uh kind of iconic moments that have sort of slowly ingrained themselves in pop culture over the over the years and you know at, at some point the film did have two sequels which i'll briefly touch on kind of as we finish up this conversation but it's definitely a film like i said that Everyone should see all horror fans should see. I actually saw this. This is probably one of the first horror films I saw Roger as a kid. I don't even know six or seven years old and running this uh, and, and watching it and being absolutely terrified of what was playing out in front of me because I'd never seen anything like it. And I think that's another thing is when the film hit hit when it, when it hit theaters or when it hit, you know, uh, VHS days, people hadn't seen anything like it before. I think that plays into the film's favor as well. But yeah, it's a great, uh, it's a great one to discuss. It's been a long time coming. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of charms to this movie. And I, I had no idea that this film was supposedly made for $35,000, which is even, even then, you know, it was still not a lot of money. All, all things considered. Wow. Wow. That's definitely a big wow factor. Um, kudos to them for pulling off something so coherent. Um, and something that honestly, if you look at how the story is approached, you know, there are, it's, there are moments of, of shock and gore and violence, but so for the most part, this is almost like a fable. In a way, like the story that's being told here is actually quite interesting. And and you're right when you say that you have an anti-hero uh, in this lead character of Dwayne, who we'll get to know. Uh, I really find, though his character is is difficult to like, both because of a you know a somewhat wooden performance, but also just because of some of the choices he makes. Um, but the overall development of his story, and as he's starting to realize you know, right and wrong and why they're doing what they're doing. And you as the viewer start to realize their motivations for everything that happened. Um, it does make for a pretty strong character arc for this, this focal character um, who really isn't necessarily a good guy, but he's in the midst of a really interesting story. I really like the story that's going on at play here in this movie. So that's the first strength I want to point out is, is I think that because it's fable like, and because there are strong elements of what's right and wrong. This movie has a conscience to it. Um, it really does make for an interesting watch, uh, and it really makes the budgetary restraints all the more impressive. This was a good script. This was a cool, interesting approach to 
what a great creature feature. Uh, and it does very much have a moral code to it. So even with their budgetary restrictions, I really appreciate the, the storytelling that's going on in this movie. You know, it's a classic tale of revenge at the end of the day. And I think we all like a classic tale of revenge. We like seeing people kind of get their just desserts. And this is a film that kind of forces us to see that in a in a in a in a horrifying way, but it does make us question like, are these is Dwayne and his brother really are they really uh villains or or is it the other way around? You know, are they justified in what they're doing? And I think that's an interesting uh, position for uh, a viewer to be put in. I also have to point out, I mean, it's highly impressive because it is director Henan Lauder's directorial debut. Uh, this is his first film. And so what he was able to do with a first feature was also like, whew. I mean, I know he went on to do, you know, um, Frankenhooker and and other very very recognizable films in the genre but for this to be his first one I mean this is you come out of the gate swinging with this right yeah I also had no idea that this was his first film so again even even all the more impressed uh and very eager to really jump into this conversation with you I think we really have a lot to dissect with this one as independent filmmakers especially one thing I really am excited about this conversation with you Troy is our filmmaking background I think is going to really highlight some of the reasons to be impressed, you know, and, and again, inspire in us as filmmakers, go that extra mile. Fuck. Like you don't have a lot of money. Fuck it. You can still make something awesome. Cause this movie is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we should get right into it because there is going to be a lot to discuss with this film. So yeah, guys, this is basket case and you know, in traditional scary movie setup, we get um, a house at night. Uh, and we are introduced to a doctor, Dr. Lifflander. We find out who this is. He's leaving his house at night uh, when he hears kind of loud noises and grunts coming from the trees around him. We get some POV shots of something from the trees watching him. Uh, one thing I do like is this doctor like right away is like, fuck this. I'm running back inside and locking my doors. And he calls the police. He has the common sense to call the police. However, I mean, whatever this thing is, it's it's definitely after him because it, it starts like banging on the windows. It gets up on the roof and starts making a lot of racket on the roof to the point where it rips out the phone line. And he is able to get a gun just as this thing. We see this thing, whatever it is, has gotten into the basement and is able to like shut off the fuse box so that the whole house goes dark. Doctor's freaked out. He starts shooting. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know the logistics of just like opening fire in your house without knowing what you're shooting at. But Hey, uh, ultimately he, you know, thinks he might've hit whatever he's shooting at. He leans up against the wall. We get this nice close up shot of his face with all of a sudden this gnarly fucking hand comes out, out of screen, grabs his face and literally like rips this guy's face to shreds. This opening scene is quick, brisk, which I like. Uh, the only thing is it's, it doesn't really build up a lot of suspense because everything happens so fast, but I think that also plays into like how effective this is because it just shows whatever this is after doctor, after this doctor is out after him. And that's the only thing it has in mind. It's there to kill and it's going to do it as quickly and savagely as possible. Now, acknowledging when you do come to realize what it is that is killing, it is terrifying in appearance. I'm going to give it that right away. However, the physical, um, 
the restrictions this thing has when considering like what it is and how it moves. I am shocked that it's such a formidable opponent um, because this guy is unable to defend himself, even with a gun in hand. Uh, and it is a, a rather suspenseful, though brief opening sequence. Like, I like the footage outside. I like the shadow play. There's like, some really great moments of the shadow closing in on him when he starts firing the gun because he knows it's in the room. Um, you know, th this opening scene shows off some of the strengths of the film. It does also show off a few of the weaknesses. Um, like this opening effect when you get like the hand that goes up and grabs the face and reveals this like kind of gory effect. The hand, it does look rubbery. Like, let's just put it out there. Uh, it's definitely a low-budget affair, but you got to respect the fact that they went all in with it. So, yeah, at first it is kind of cheap-looking. It does have a little bit of that rubbery texture to it. There's far better kills as the movie goes on. The, the creature effects get significantly better. I just don't necessarily know if this opening, though it's a strong build-up, gives us the best taste of what's to come. I think it, it almost caused me to lower my expectations a little bit. Uh, there's also this moment where he has like, what looks to be like the tip of his nose and his lip ripped off. But you can tell that like they were trying to do like a, a teeth jaw effect over his lip and it's it's moving like a lip really would when it's supposed to be, I think, the teeth underneath it. Um, and it just, yeah, it looks, it's not their best work. But what comes after this, I think, is significantly better. But I still like it as an opening scene. I think it's fun. I think it's quick. And it gets the ball a rolling. And it's important to the storyline. Yes, it is important to the storyline. It is important to the, to the storyline by far. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The one thing that you, this film, it, it causes you, obviously, obviously, when you get to know what's going on, you have to suspend a lot of belief. But when you you are right when you find out what exactly this is and you actually see it it does make how it's able to to do all these things and how it's able to almost seemingly have like superhuman strengths at, at certain points it makes that seem very uh questionable i mean this thing is ripping doors off of walls i mean once it gets once it gets onto somebody like it is they can't overpower it and i i don't know necessarily if that's something easy to buy based on what we're given because we, we find out it's just supposed to be it's it's supposed to be like a slimy i didn't know the, where the superhuman powers that the, this thing apparently has come from is confusing i'll just put that out there now but i can see what you're saying yeah the hand does look rubbery a lot of the effects you know keep in mind this was the early 80s and we're watching this now in 2024 um so yeah a lot of the effect the effects aren't going to look as as maybe as realistic or convincing as they did when the film first came out because like i said i feel like when this film first came out there wasn't a lot like it so after this brief but brutal opening scene we do cut to times square new york city uh i i respect the fuck out of the fact that this film actually filmed on location in new york city it's not trying to disguise another city as new york this is fucking new york it looks like new york i also appreciate the fact that uh reading like trivia and background on the film like they did not get permits to film any of this stuff <laughs> i mean this was literally low budget guerrilla filmmaking at its finest i mean they just started filming as quickly as they could and they their philosophy was well by the time someone gets here to tell us to quit filming we'll be done with our shots <laughs> oh but doesn't that like come through in the best possible way troy because you do i mean in the opening shot here the first 
the first shot you get of, of the actual New York setting, you know, you get this great wide shot of Times Square. And then the first shot you get when you're introduced to this, this character of Dwayne is this amazing, like long shot of him walking through like just the gritty streets of, of New York. And it, it, in one shot, Right off the bat, within the first five minutes of this movie, in one single shot, this movie gives me more authentic New York experience than the entire length of Jason Takes Manhattan. <laughs> I, mean, it's, I mean, honestly, even I love I love the last Scream movie, but even in that film in general, like this movie, right off the bat, I saw it and I felt fully immersed in the culture. Uh, similar almost to um, when we watched Angel. And remember, we had that same kind of experience acknowledging how Angel brought you very much into into the culture and the life and the energy of, of the city that that was based in. Same thing here. You know, it really, it just, you're submerged in it. And it really makes for an exciting experience. And I love this whole moment with this heckler coming up who literally tries to sell this kid every single drug note to man. Like, if, if you can think of it, this guy's got it. Um, but it's just a fun way to kick off the moment. And he also, when, when Dwayne doesn't answer him about what drugs he does, Roger, he also has women. He's like, oh, what is it, girls you want? Uh, I got those too. But very like, I mean, it just, it comes off as being very authentic. This is something you would probably experience if you were walking in, you know, Times Square during this time period as a, as a, you know, young single man. He is carrying his trusty basket and he happens upon what we see as hotel Broslin, which becomes a prominent setting for the film. I like this setting. I like the characters that exist within the setting. I like that they keep coming back to it. Uh, it is. It feels very much like <laughs> it fits. It fits the budget of the movie. Um, but it, it makes for a really good setup for them to introduce what is a lot of uh, in, incoming and outgoing characters. You know, small secondary characters who add a lot of life to this place. Um, and I, I really enjoy this. Is like kind of like the central location. This is the main. I would say focal location for the majority of the film i really like what it brings to the table yeah and it just i get it we're gonna keep using this word and but it's it's so true it's, it just rings so authentic this place this hole in the wall dive looking place that he goes into to get a room and we have the hotel manager there behind the, his little desk and all of his like little ragtag residents who uh have taken residence in this hotel it seems like this hotel um is more of a resident hotel for a lot of these, like I said, these like ragtag individuals who might've come to the big city with big dreams, but realized they weren't going to make it and now have to stay in this like rundown decrepit $20 a night hotel room, because it, it does seem like it's the same people in this hotel that are very attached to it as we get to know. And here you have Dwayne walking in with his basket, wanting a room. And you know, they're, they're kind of, um, I don't want to say dismissive of them, but you know, they're like, Oh, here, who's this new guy? Uh, we don't want any trouble. What you got in the basket. Dwayne tells him it's close. They proceed to let him rent room number seven on the third floor for 20 bucks being, you know, Dwayne being young and innocent. I don't know how he, how old he is supposed to be in this film. How, what do you, what are you guessing? Like 21, 22. He's a young kid from upstate New York. Never been to the city before as we find out. So he's very uh, naive we see that firsthand when he just proceeds to take out a the biggest wad of fucking fifty dollar bills I've ever seen in my life. Takes them out in front of all of these obviously like 
individuals who he probably should not be showing that he has this kind of money to. Uh, and even even the hotel manager's like, is this stuff real? And he gives him 20 bucks, puts the money back in his pocket, and he goes back up to his room. And we do get this one character, O'Donovan is his name. And we see right away O'Donovan latches on to the fact that he has that money. He's like, did you see that? Did you see all that money he has? And you're like, oh, you kind of figure out where this is going with this particular O'Donovan character, right? Uh, like, you know, let's take a moment to to talk about Dwayne. And, and you know, he is very wide-eyed to the world. And he is very much the focal character. And, you know, at first gla- uh, glance, I really, I thought he looked like, you know, if we're going to talk about New York and Broadway, I thought he looked like the, the star of the 1982 film Annie, one Eileen Quinn, but stretched and elongated to be a much taller individual because this lanky, leggy man with his big, full, luscious head of hair. What a head of hair. I don't think we've ever had a a leading man in a movie with a bigger, better head of hair than this kid. (laughs) But he's, he's, um, you know, he's awkward. He plays into that well. He looks the part, you know. He's not necessarily attractive, but he's very lanky and uncomfortable, and, you know, he gives a fine performance. One of the things that I would say does kind of hinder this movie a little bit, and it does bring out some of its more indie properties, is, like, the audio is kind of all over the place. It's not that the audio is necessarily ever bad, but you can tell that there are a lot of moments they had to to dub or to, like, ADR. Um, And, like, you know, first sequence you have of this kid talking kind of starts on a weird note with some really obvious dubbing. Um, And the dubbing is never necessarily very good. It's always very wooden. So some of the audio does kind of affect the overall performances in the film. But, you know, even though they're not the best performances as I've ever seen, it's one of the most unique ensemble casts I've just seen in a while. And so I almost feel like some of the more stilted, awkward, not necessarily great acting in a way almost enhances the experience because these characters are so weird and, and colorful and unique. I almost don't care. It kind of like lends to the experience in a way. Yeah. Dwayne is an interesting character to follow played by Kevin Van Hentenrick, who did return for basket case two and three, which again, I'll touch on at the end of this episode. Cause I have a few things I want to say about those, but um, yeah, no, I think his performance is fine. Uh, there are some, like you said, very obviously wooden moments from him. Uh, but then there are also moments where he actually is really fucking good. So uh, you know, knowing what they were working with and knowing like probably the shooting schedule was tight as fuck and they, they didn't you know have a lot of time for a lot of elaborate takes and whatnot. You know, I think his performance is, is, is charming. I, I, you're right. You're surrounded by a lot of these really just interesting performances that maybe in another movie I would be annoyed by. But here I, I just think they they work with the oddness of the film it's, itself. They do. They do. I Absolutely. I, I really think, it, like I said, it almost lends to the material uh, and adds to that fable-like quality because some of these characters do feel a bit larger than life. Um, but because of what goes on within this movie, it has to be larger than life because it does not make any sense at all. So I'm, I'm fine with it. I, I like it. I embrace that aspect of it. Well, one of the characters we're introduced to, and I really wanted more from this character. We she she gets this one big scene when Dwayne is going up to his room. We she comes out this broad. It's Josephine. It's Josephine, and she, I mean, she doesn't really even introduce herself. She does. She's like, "Hi, I'm Josephine," but then she launches into, "What room are you in? Room seven? 
oh my, that's the best room in the house. You know, that an old lady who had tons of money used to live there before. And, you know, she, one day she, you know, came out in her, her best dress and then just disappeared. We never saw her again. And then she just leaves. Like she just like walks away from him. That's, that's her whole interaction with him. They definitely were kind of implying here. I think that this woman is batshit crazy and I wanted it. Oh, I was like first viewing. I was like, this is my kind of girl. I know. I, I wanted more of her. However, Roger, I will say the character that we end up getting more focus on i actually really fucking like oh and that is that is casey yeah who is obviously a prostitute because when he first sees her she is leading some homely old man into her room and she does kind of wink and give him a little chuckle and she goes back into her room now i at first viewing you know i thought okay we'll probably never see anything from her again but she comes back and she also she ultimately becomes one of my favorite characters in the film I absolutely love the character. I think the actress is the best performer in the entire film. She's so engaging. I, I want to know more about her. Like I, I could see it. I could watch a sequel just called Casey and, and I would be totally entranced. They give us so many little moments with her character and, and you're, you're right. I did not expect to give this character a second thought upon first viewing. I thought it, she was going to be very much a throwaway, but I, I really love where they go with the character. They don't even take, like they could have taken her in like a romantic angle or a sexual angle, you know, for this young kid, for this kid who's like starting to experience love and romance and feel these feelings for the first time. They could have really utilized her character in that fashion. And it would have felt like any other movie of the time, you know, you've got a prostitute, you introduce her, she's disposable, she's gonna have a big death scene, she's done. They go a different, completely different angle with this character, and they give her a heart, and they give her compassion, and like, just like, let's just throw it out there now, she's the only real character of color other than a detective here, um, but she's honestly portrayed to be the most likable and down-to-earth and just supportive character possible for this being 1980, what did you say? What was 1982? It came out in 82, so I'm assuming it was filmed probably in 81. I mean, this feels like this, I just, I feel like the, the, the team behind this film had to be a bit more progressive and open-minded to to how they were going to approach this character and not take her the complete typical route of that era of making characters like that disposable um, and making that the people that play them disposable. Uh, I love that they gave her uh, like a heartbeat and a pulse. And I, you're absolutely right in saying she's the best part of the film. Um, I would watch more of her. I do know she's in the sequels. I did read up on that. So knowing that she comes back in some context, if any, makes me want to see them. I will say that. She, okay. She, yeah, she does, but it's literally for like 20 seconds. Um, it's, they basically use her in the sequel as a, as a news interview, uh, like a news reporters interviewing her. That's all we get. It's, it's literally like 20 seconds. Um, but the sequels are worth watching for a whole other slew of reasons, Roger, uh, which, which we'll get to. So, yeah. So we're introduced to candy. He goes into his room and this is when we are introduced to the fact that something is in this basket because he's talking to the basket. He tells the basket, hey, we made it. We're here. I'm going to go get us something to eat. <laughs> so he runs He runs downstairs. He asks you know, the hotel manager if there's a place to get something to eat. And he's like, yeah, it's right across the street. So he runs back. He comes back with a shitload, a shitload, Roger, of like burgers, like a whole fucking 
bag of burgers. And we're like, there's no way this kid is eating all these burgers. No, he's like, oh, it's dinner time. So he lifts the basket open and he literally starts to drop these fucking burgers with the wrapper still on them into this basket. And we hear this fucking thing going to town <laughs> eating these fucking burgers. And that that was that was was that was the best impersonation. I was not expecting that at all, Troy. Oh my god. It made me jump in my headphones. It made me jump. It sounded like I was there, right in front of that fucking basket. I got a few I got a few bones I gotta throw out real quick. Let's talk about this basket. This is a wicker <laughs> this is a wicker basket like your mother possibly used to keep linens in. Um, this is not a basket that I look at and think it's durable or sturdy. Um, the kid has it deadbolted, but I don't think that would do much for a wicker basket. <laughs> like, if, if this thing could climb on people and maul them. Especially when it it's ripping doors off of the hinges, but you're trying to tell me it can't it can't break a lock off the wicker basket. <laughs> So think immediately, immediately I'm questioning things. Um, but yeah, this thing is ravenous. And I really appreciate that they do give us some time here where we are, as viewers, thinking what the fuck is in the basket. It's not the whole movie. They do end up revealing it about midway in, uh, you know, like around the midway point, you end up seeing this thing and you see it from that point on moving forward. But, you know, the first few times you're exposed to the existence of this creature, the first uh, kill and so forth. It's very much like almost from its perspective. They keep it very obscured. And these first few moments here with with uh, Dwayne as well, there's this mystery element of him saying like, okay, uh, you know, not yet. Now's not the time. Maybe later. Like he keeps implying to something's going to happen. And they keep having these little conversations, but you don't see what the thing is aside from the occasional hand. They do a really good job with building up that that intrigue here. Um, and I really like that about this film. But boy, oh boy, do we have something coming. <laughs> I mean, like, like it's, it's going to pay off. All of this, this buildup and this intrigue is going to pay off for sure. But then it's also revealed to us that Dwayne and whatever's in this basket had to have had something to do with uh, the doctor's death in the beginning of the film. Because what Dwayne pulls out of his uh, bag is this file that we saw in the opening scene that was on the doctor's desk gets splattered with blood. Dwayne now has it and he's opens it up and he's searching for specific doctors, names and phone numbers. He says, Oh, I found the one, but, but Dr. Cutters isn't in here. So he, as this thing is eating its burger, he, he takes a burger and he just kind of lays back in bed and contemplates, uh, and then falls asleep. But in the middle of the night, he wakes up and we do hear pacing. We, I do like the fact that we hear this thing like walking around, like you can hear its footsteps and it's wanting to talk to him. And what it's revealed is that this thing can talk to him telepathically because we don't hear its voice, obviously, but he is like, would you shut up and just let me sleep? No, I don't want to talk. Are you going to keep me up all night? Just go to fucking sleep. I just want to go to sleep. The telepathic element to this film, when they first introduced it here, I was like, oh boy. <laughs> I was like, they're really throwing a lot, a lot at me. But as the story goes on, it becomes a lot more uh, palatable. I, I really actually don't mind that that relationship, especially when it's explained. But at first, you're you're just like, okay, I have no idea what the fuck is going on here. Um, and I don't know. I again, you do get some of these more wooden moments of acting from this kid. He's good in the role. But I'm, I'm not fully grasping his relationship. And maybe that was intentional. 
you know, maybe that was more from the director's standpoint of, you know, not wanting to give away this close relationship to this thing. You know, they're building up the intrigue of what is this kid's relationship to what's in the box? Why does he have it? You as the viewer have uh, more questions and answers early on, but it does, I would say, work towards the benefit of the movie overall. There's a lot of surprise moments, keeps things exciting. It definitely keeps our interest. Like it, it, it does a really good job of throwing all these things at us at once to make us really, 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 really want to know what's in the basket. Because not only is this thing eating burgers with wrappers still on them, but it's also communicating with them telepathically. It's it's obviously out of the basket at some point because we hear it walking around. So as the as the viewer, we're like, God damn, I really, really want to fucking know what what this is. I also really want a fucking burger because the way they make those burgers <sighs> look, goddamn, ooh, they look good. I mean, there is not nothing better, Roger, than a fucking greasy hamburger from a uh, grimy New York fucking cafe oh on, in, in Times Square. Uh, a burger or a hot dog or a fucking slice of pizza. Fuck. I'll eat all of them. And let's also acknowledge this fucking ho- uh, hotel he's living in real quick. Because there's no way this kid ain't getting out of there without bed bugs. This place is not meeting code. It is so just grungy. The The hallways are lined with dirt and debris. I mean, the walls are like crumbling. I don't know if this is a set or they literally just found this place and we're allowed to film it. But like this place looks like it is infested with something and it's just, uh, but it makes for the perfect set. It's supposed to be that, uh, but I cannot imagine that this place was allowed to actually operate when they weren't filming in it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, this place doesn't look like it's been wiped down with a, with a broom or a, a mop at any time soon. And again, these same characters live there. They're living there for a ridiculous 20 bucks a night. I mean, you have hookers, you have, uh, O'Donovan. I want to know this O'Donovan story, Roger, because the next day that old fuck, he s- sneaks out of his fucking room and he's going and fucking peeping in Kevin's door. Like he's trying to peep through the keyhole. Because he knows, remember, he knows that Kevin has this huge wad of wad of money. And at the same time, Casey comes out and, and catches him. And this is like when we first are introduced to this Casey character as a character. Because she comes out and she tells him to get the hell out of there, get the hell out of here before I knock on this door and tell him what you're doing. And he leaves, goes back in his room, and she's walking down the hallway. And she even she's even making comments about the place. She's like, this goddamn place, cockroaches from one end to the other. You got now you got people peeping in peepholes. And she does then make the decision to go knock on Kevin's door to tell him. And and Kevin answers all groggily. And she's like, Hey, you got somebody peeping in your room. So if you got something valuable in there, you might want to hide it. Like if you got money, you might want to hide it. I love that. She so instinctively just goes back and just straight up warns him again, not the route I anticipated this character going. Um, And this is this is like her main defining trait the whole course of the movie. She's very supportive of him. Uh, She's got his back. She becomes his friend. Um, And again, like, I mean, we're going to mention it, I'm sure, time and time again over the course of this review. But Casey is like the light of the movie. She adds an element of heart to the movie that um, that it really needs. It ends up being a rather cold, bleak movie. I mean, this film is building up to a rather depressing note. Uh, and she's one of the few aspects of the movie um, that seems to offer this kid kindness, aside from the love interest, who is also, I think, a rather positive character, as we're about to discover here in a moment. Um, but, you know, she offers him kindness, and, and it's something it doesn't seem like he's had much of in his life from what we are going to come to learn about him. So it makes her all the more important to the story. 
and it's genuine kindness because I think upon first viewing, if you're if you don't know any better, like you could think that she is only warning him and wanting to get into his room because she wants the money. But that's not the case at all. Like she's doing it genuinely because she's concerned about him. She she sees, she recognizes this young kid. Like is in the like she even asks him, "What are you doing in a place like this?" Like he says, "It's the first hotel I came upon." Um, so she, it's it's coming from a genuinely good place. She genuinely cares about him, and I think that's what makes this character even that much more dynamic and special to the film. So yeah, she she warns him, and Dwayne uh, takes the basket, and he's like, "Come on, it's time to go visit our friend, Doctor Needleman." He gets to this office. Uh, this doctor, not God, Roger, what is it with every fucking place? And that, but it adds, this is what I'm saying. It adds to the atmosphere. Every fucking place in this movie looks grungy, dirty. Like this is supposed to be a doctor's office. I would not fucking take my dying cat here, let alone myself. But I believe it would exist in this very like impoverished rundown area, you know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure in, in, in Manhattan areas of Manhattan areas of like Hell's Kitchen and stuff, you're going to see this exact type of establishment. Like, I mean, he's walking through this. It looks like it's just a rundown, grimy, grungy, dilapidated uh, office building until he gets to the uh, to this uh Doctor's office, Dr. Needleman's office. And we do get little moments like this old broad complaining that Dr. Needleman subscribe or uh, subscribe or prescribed her the wrong medication and she's allergic to it. And he should have, she should have known. Well, which is setting up very much a lot to learn about the character as well. Like you get these tiny little uh, cameo moments from these weird little characters, but she has a purpose. Like she's describing what is a really like just shitty like character like this doctor like his practice is probably a load of bullshit um he's greasy and slimy and dirty and the character fits the environment he's working in so i i love this little moment with this woman um i also love the introduction to this character of sharon this hair this this hair troy is that a wig or is that just good voluminous hair no it's a that's a that is a wig (laughs) but this is is a wig wig where i'm i'm on board unlike our last review of lover's lane where that wig left me it left a bad taste in my mouth troy this wig they just embrace it they just go full full teased big oh it's so good if you ever do drag again, that's going to be your fucking hairstyle right there. And my eyeshadow that, too, that purple eyeshadow. Oh, she, okay, I'm here's the thing, Roger. I'm glad you know her name because I fucking did not. I, I this character, the, I don't remember them mentioning her name once. I, in fact, in my notes, I just have receptionist the whole time. I, I guess I could have looked on IMDb to see what they called her, but for a character that's so prominent, I'm surprised. Like. He never says her name, right? She never says her name. To he him. does later. He does later in one of the moments where he's arguing with his brother, and that's when I heard it. Um, but it's in the midst of like like the ar- argument. I think, it might, or maybe it's the moment where he pulls her out uh, and, and pushes her out of the, out into the streets. I think he maybe says her name. But there's one of the moments where you hear it really quickly, and, and I was listening for it by that point because you're right. It never comes up like in basic conversation. No. Well, right away, she... Um thinks he's the uh because he comes in with his basket and she thinks he's the typewriter repairman she's like yeah it's this typewriter right here and he has to tell her oh i'm not the typewriter or a repairman i just want to see dr needleman is it possible i'm an old family friend and they get some banner back and forth when she's like oh i'm so sorry i thought you were the, t- the typewriter repairman and there's this moment where she like recites or, or mocks with the noise the typewriter's making 
into the she's like, all right, it's making this really weird mousy noise. Like, wait, 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 right into the camera. I'm like, this is so odd. This woman, I'm sorry. I don't know what he sees in her uh, because I would be I would be annoyed by this woman two minutes after hanging out with her. Like if I took her to a bar, I'd be like, okay, yeah, I'm done with she is so fucking annoying. Uh, it's not even funny. Uh, like she's, she's all over the place with like her emotions and like, like there's a moment where he tells her that he, this is his first time in New York. Right. And she's like, Oh, have you, uh, gotten to see, you know, the statue of Liberty? He's like, no, I haven't got, I haven't had time. She's like, you haven't had time. She legitimately gets angry because he hasn't gone to see the statue of Liberty. I'm like, calm down, honey. But in this world of, crazy characters that we've already met like at this point everyone feels just like a bit elevated and so for me personally like i ended up finding this character to be rather endearing not at first i agree like at first i was like what the fuck are they trying to do here but as soon as she made the the typewriter noises i knew i was in love with this woman and um and i i really like you know it seems like she has his overall she's another character who seems to really have his overall best interest in mind but she also seems quite a bit older than he does. Maybe that's why they put her in that wig to try to make her look a little bit younger. I don't know. It's <laughs> I don't know because he's like this doe-eyed like kid. You know, obviously everyone's treating him like a kid. I'm assuming, like I said, he's supposed to be maybe like 21, 22. He's he's to the point where he's able to, or maybe even younger. He's to the point where he's able to to finally put this plan that has been planned into motion because he's financially capable of doing so and independent enough to do so. So I'm thinking is he's supposed to be like 20, 21. She she looks like she's in her thirties. It's just a really weird, like, because, because of this dynamic where I thought that she was coming off as much older than he was, when she does ultimately be like, Oh, I could be your tour guide. I legit thought it was just like her being nice because I really didn't see like there was this any sort of chemistry or attraction between the two of them. But then once they actually go out to do this, you, you find out, Oh, supposedly they both really are attracted to each other. I know it's very odd. It's very, she odd. speaks with such passion though. When she's talking about being a tour guide, I mean, she's going through all of the locations of New York. She's naming them off uh, one after another. And I mean, like I would trust her as my tour guide. I'll say that she's really, she's sure selling New York to me. She's doing pretty good at that. Yeah. Oh no. I. I. But that. But, but I. I felt like it was more of like, yeah. I'm just going to be a friendly tour guide, not. Oh, I want to fuck you. He finally gets in to see Doctor Needleman. Doctor Needleman is like, hey, what can I do for you? Oh, I have a pain in my chest. He says. So the doctor go tells him to go take off his shirt in this other room. When the doctor goes into the room to examine him, we see that Dwayne is sitting on the examination table and he has this huge scar down the side of him and you can tell dr needleman recognizes this and he's like oh shit oh yeah and it is it's gonna take you by surprise as if you're a first time viewer i mean i'm gonna say it right now it's gonna take you by surprise because up to this point i knew something was in the box i didn't know there was something growing on this kid's torso uh but yeah it's this giant just massive like incision mark with all of this like weird like growth like texture around it um and it's it's quite shocking on first viewing it really is well then it cuts to him like rushing out of the uh the, the doctor's uh examination room back into the receptionist's office where she's like hey did he so what's the verdict did he tell you, you had a few months to live and he's like no 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 it's fine and she's like okay well i get off at seven and he says well 
yeah, I can't go tonight, but maybe tomorrow. And this is the moment he like rushes to put the basket like way across the room and he goes and whispers to her. He's like, uh, I, I'm free tomorrow. Can I have your, your, your phone number and your address? And she writes it down and she's like, yeah, why are we whispering? He says, because I don't want him to hear. She's like, hey, that doctor real loud. But they, they, they plan a date together. I like this for both of them. I, I feel like they both seem to be kind of invested in each other. It does kind of spring up out of nowhere. We don't get a ton of it. Like her character is kind of sprinkled as a secondary element through throughout parts of the film. Um, but we don't get to know her character as well as I feel like you should for what ends up being her inevitable final sequence um but i don't know i I think that this is a cute little moment here what i do really like though is the moments that we're kind of cutting back and forth to of needleman who ends up being i think a really really interesting character and rather well played uh and intense and and just a really big loud personality and he has this really great phone conversation coming up here in a moment with another one of the doctors that i really think his acting is actually quite great in that moment so apparently when Dwayne leaves this doctor's office, he goes to a movie theater, takes takes his basket, his basket set next to him on a in a chair and they're watching some uh, kung fu movie uh, and he dozes off. And as he's as he's dozing in and out of consciousness, consciousness, we do notice that there's a guy sitting in the other row that has his eye on the basket. And once Dwayne is completely asleep, this guy like runs up, takes the basket and takes it and takes off running with it. Dwayne wakes up and realizes the basket's gone. So he dashes out of the theater. And at the same time, the the man that took the basket is in the bathroom with it. And he kicks the lock off of it uh, and opens it up. And when he opens it up, he, he screams bloody murder. At the same time, Dwayne hears this, goes running into the bathroom only to see the guy run past him, holding his bloody face. Dwayne goes in, retrieves the basket, closes the lid and says, not now, not yet. Save it. A few things about this moment. First of all, this movie theater looks dangerous. I am not surprised that this guy had the basket stolen from him within seconds. He like literally nods off. Guy grabs the basket. He wakes up. It's gone. Um, Second of all, the basket, all it takes is for this man who is wearing very obvious like sneakers to like kick (laughs) <laughs> to kick the bolt off of it for it to like just break right off because now the bolt's off um it doesn't take much at all as i wouldn't expect it to again this is a wicker basket so i'm shocked that this thing is able to uh, was not able to break out of it sooner um and then this whole moment here where he gets slashed to the face but clearly survives the man runs from the theater i feel like this would leave a big open-ended aspect to the story and that would you not think this man would like run and seek assistance tell somebody about being attacked by this monstrous creature within this basket and then bring a lot of issues for what is Dwayne and and the creature in the basket um I don't understand how this goes unaddressed but like I'm fine with it <laughs> yeah I was the, I had the same thought like where is this guy going his face has been ripped open is he not going to seek medical, medical attention? What's Where's he going? I mean, he's running out of this theater. He's going to run out onto the busy New York street. People are going to see his face has been ripped open and is bleeding profusely. Don't you think this would lead somewhere? But no, it doesn't. It just never is addressed, which again, like you, I'm fine with in the context of this film, whatever. It, it works. So that night, Needleman is still in his office and he first he tries to call uh, the doctor from the beginning of the film gets no answer. So then he has to go through his Rolodex until he finds Dr. Cutter's number. And he calls up Dr. Cutter 
And this woman is literally whining and dining a, a guy that looks to be half her age, if not younger. She is just trying to get him drunk. He takes a drink of champagne and he, and she's like, Oh, do you want some more? And he's like, no, 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 I can't have any more. If I get any more, I'm going to be, I'm going to be tipsy. And she's like, Oh, that's okay. I like you drunk. I like to see you drool. She, this woman has Dick on her mind. That is it. That is all she has. I love this woman. I love her, Troy. I feel like this is you or me. This is you or me in like 10 years. <laughs> no, but like, like first, first line the, the guy gives, he says, that was delicious. And she says, and so are you. And I said, I fucking love this broad. <laughs> yeah. She looks like, she looks like she could be his, like, not just his mother, but like her, his mother's older sister. Like this woman is mature, but goddamn, she's getting this kid liquored up and she's going to fucking ride the shit out of him. And she's making it clear. And this is another really good example of some of the quirky, unique character choices they make. You maybe don't get a ton of information on some of these characters, but in in other films in the hands of less capable filmmakers, even less capable filmmakers who've had bigger budgets, a scene like this could have been as dis- disposable as her like picking up the phone, having the conversation, hanging up, it's done. They chose to do something that really uh, established who this woman is, how she operates, um, the, the kind of uh, maybe... Uh, dominating personality, I would say, because it does come across that she is, even though she's the woman of the group of these doctors, she does have to seem, she seems to have the most say in the matter. You know, I would take it that she is probably like the lead surgeon. So it does make this woman to seem like she's got this authoritative energy to her. Um, And it was just a really cool, bold character choice. And it really just lends to her character all the more. And she has that deep, breathy voice that that, that is just so distinct. Uh, yeah, but the phone rings and interrupts her her dinner with this hot young piece of ass she's trying to get, and it's it's Needleman, and she's like Needleman, who Harold? I thought I told you never to call me. And he proceeds to tell her about the young man that came to visit him, who had the scar along the side of him, and also that told him that Doctor Lifflander has been is dead and has been ripped apart. Uh, and she says very like. She's like, you know what? Why you bother me? I'm trying to eat my dinner. And I need to remind you that neither one of us know a Dr. Lifflander, nor have we ever been to Northern New York. So I'm going to get back to my dinner now. And she hangs up on him. And then she goes back to that kid and she calls him Cuddles. (laughs) Do you you catch that? (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm sorry for being interrupted, Cuddles. I I need to know, like, where she found this guy. Like, what is the story with this? Yeah, that's the sequel I need, Troy. That's the one I need. Casey's story and this broad story. Let's see it. Let's see it all in live, live and in color. <laughs> well, what Needleman does not know after he hangs up with Dr. Cutter is that Dwayne has returned to his office. And he listens to Sharon, you said her name was? You listen, he listens to Sharon Lee for the night. And then he proceeds to sneak into the office, tell the thing. Go do your thing. I'll be waiting for you. And don't forget the don't forget to get his address book. Uh, and Needleman's in his office by himself. And we see this thing like we hear it going towards the door. Then we see the 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 rubbery hand reach up and grab the doorknob. And then all of a sudden we hear and, and Dr. Needleman gets up from his office to look at to look things over. Like, what the fuck was that noise? And he goes to his, you know, main office and we see the door has literally been kicked in, which Again, what is the logistics of this thing kicking in a door? I, I need to know how it did this. 
Yeah, but also, what are what are the chances that this thing has glowing red eyes, Troy? <laughs> but somehow, some way, it does. So I'm not thinking that there's necessarily a lot of reality uh, existing around this this creature and its its, pre- its presence within the film. Um, but we are about to be revealed. You know, we are about to see what this thing is, and it is it's a strong build up. The sequence is fun, even though it makes no fucking sense. Uh, you know, the whole idea that this door would get blown off, it, it, this thing, even it just it's. It ends up not being very big is my problem. Like, I don't know where the muscles even would be. Like, I just think that it's like a mad, it's like a, a mass of like fleshy tissue. And, like, like it's like a living tumor as we're about to find. And I just don't understand how it could even manage to open a door, let alone climb up, I mean, it, break it off. I mean, it's, it fits in a, it fits in a picnic basket. It's not like it's the thing, the strength that this thing has throughout all three of the films is mind-boggling considering what it is and what it's lacking it doesn't have legs uh, <laughs> but i'm fine with it like I'm, I'm okay with it i'm able to suspend the reality enough to say you know what when this guy turns on the light and we get this big reveal and we see this thing for the first time and i, I see this is what i'm in for <laughs> anything goes troy like this movie really can't really do any wrong for me so yes it's completely absurd but it is a great reveal moment i'll say that oh yeah because he runs into his office and he, he shuts the door and barricades it and then he he hears more noises so as he he's walking in through his office into his the closet area of his office he turns on the light and that's when we we are first see this thing we see the creature hanging on the wall and it jumps onto his face and attacks him. I mean, and this thing, again, it's about the size of, I don't know, what, you, what do you want to say it's about the size of? Uh, a pillow? Like a, a mid-large sized dog, maybe. Like, <laughs> like it's a big pillow. Yeah, and big it, it pillow. attacks him and it latches onto his face and literally rips his face open. And we hear it just like screaming. We see that it has a face. It has eyes. And it rips his stomach open. And as it's climbing, you know, then we get this moment where it's like climbing back out the window and we see that it has literally ripped this guy in half. It's great. I mean, honestly, like this whole attack sequence, it's chaotic. Um, All of my issues with the first kill, the first doctor who died at the very opening of the film, the gore here is a lot stronger. You get this great shot of blood just spraying the doctor in his face. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's really well done. There are multiple moments over the course of this movie where there is like, they have a, they have a puppeteered version of this creature. I'm assuming somebody's face is in this thing, like operating, or at least, I don't know, maybe it's a hand. Maybe it really just is a puppet. There are several times over the course of this film where you see this thing and it's definitely like, it's just like a replica of it. It's just like a rubbery constructed piece of, that is like this creature with its little limp arms hanging. And oftentimes that's what's used in these attack sequences. <laughs> so you have a lot of moments of people <laughs> like struggling with this rubbery doll of this monster. And it's like, it's not necessarily scary or intimidating, It's but it is very int- entertaining to watch. Um, and so for any time where there is an attack, sequence involving this thing like i can't help but laugh it's so absurd it's so absurd but it is it you know it is so fucking cool that they pull this thing off as much as they do (laughs) but i mean like is it dated absolutely is it at times hard to look at absolutely but is it just bonkers and just so fucking kick-ass and just such a unique design yes and 
that rises above any issues I have with the overall quality of this thing. The rubbery hands, you can see the seam in it sometimes, but it's still such a great practical effect that I don't give a fuck. And I really enjoy whenever this thing is on screen for the rest of the movie, it makes this movie so much fun to watch. And they don't, and the fact that they don't try to hide it from this point forward, you know, knowing that, you know, it might have flaws in, in, in how it looks and how it's, how it moves. They don't try to hide it. In fact, they give this thing a lot to do from this point forward. I mean, it's throwing furniture around here in a little bit. I mean, so yeah, I think it's, it's fun. It's, but it's also like terrifying. You know what I mean? Like we, I mean, this thing is like unhinged. Like in its anger, when we see that this thing is angry and it's attacking, it is, it's absolutely unhinged and it becomes terrifying. For all of its flaws, Troy, it really is also something that like the, the pros outweigh the cons. There are moments that it does look kind of cheap, but the great moments with it, the shots where it hits, you know, we talked about when we covered the Beyond a couple of weeks ago with Fulci, you know, he always chose to linger on the shots and show everything that they're doing, even if it may look like an effect, it's better to show all of it and the fact that they're going there than to cut away and skimp out on the gore. And I feel this movie follows the same kind of concept with this thing. They'd rather show it in all its fucking glory and say, we did this, we created this, and most of the time it is going to hit, and sometimes it won't, but still, we're going to fucking put it out there kudos to that like i tip my hat to that as an indie filmmaker that impresses me more than anything for sure well it does climb out the window and go goes back down the building to find Dwayne and give him the address book that it took from needleman and of course Dwayne opens it up and he does find dr cutter's address which is like what he's been searching for this entire time the next day Dwayne happily brings his brother a pack of hot dogs for breakfast and pours it in the basket and we hear we hear the thing just going to town on these hot dogs. He also tells him, "Hey, I'm going to go scope out Dr. Cutter's apartment. There's no reason for you to go, but instead I got you something." And it's a TV that he picked up for the thing to entertain him. And so he sets the TV next to the basket. And he's like, "I'll be back in a little bit. You know, you get um you get entertained here." So as Dwayne leaves, we do get the shot of the, the hand coming out of the basket to try to turn the knob and it like breaks the TV knob off. I love the visual of this thing just sitting there watching TV. I really wish he would have had more time with the television. Um, unfortunately, it does break right away. Um, but what you learn is that Dwayne is really trying to distract the brother from the idea that he's going on this date. Um, it becomes clear that he doesn't really have a lot of free will. Um, and he's clearly trying to lie to this tumor creature uh, about what he's doing. So he tries to go make this day happen with that lovely secretary, Sharon, the one that you're not fond of with the wig on, <laughs> which again, like, I mean, it is a bold choice to have that wig, um, but they have this cute little scene coming up here where they do go and hang out under the statue of Liberty. They do. They do. And again, this is another moment. They did not have permits to film at the statue of Liberty. They just did it. And was like, Oh, if we get caught, Oh, well, we'll have our, we will have our footage. Um, but yeah, they, they, they're at the Statue of Liberty. She stops to take her shoes off. She's like, oh, I'm so exhausted. And he's like, you know what? Uh, can I be honest with you? I really don't want to see any of the city. I just wanted to spend time with you. And she basically has a, a moment where she's like, girl, same, because I wanted to, I asked you on this little excursion just because I wanted to spend time with you. And then they, they, they embrace in this passionate kiss, Roger. 
very passionate. A long kiss. It literally is long enough for an entire scene to go by. They're still kissing by the end of that scene. But then it jump cuts to all of a sudden this the thing popping out of the basket, screaming its head off. Oh, he's pissed off. Oh, he's and he's you know, the moments where he is like wide mouth screaming, he is pretty terrifying as you see the rubbery insides of his throat. Oh, but he's livid. Oh, he he is screaming. He comes out of the basket. He <laughs> drops onto the floor. <laughs> and we see this thing moving. I mean it's It's throwing a tantrum. <laughs> It's throwing a tantrum. It's so it's like stop motion animation. It's uh, it reminds me of a lot of the stuff from the first Evil Dead film that, you know, back then was very innovative, visionary. But now as we watch it, we're like, oh, wow, this looks pretty hokey. But it's so funny to see this thing like literally pick up, you know, pull out dresser drawers and throw them across the room. Uh, it is having a tantrum and to the fact where people like all the residents can hear it. It's screaming. It's throwing shit around. Uh, that Josephine, she goes to the door and everyone's like, where's it coming from? She's like, it's in here. It's in here. Finally, the manager gets the key and runs up there to get into the room to see what the fuck's going on. It is some of the worst stop motion animation I've ever seen in my life. But again, it adds to the charm of the movie. But there are moments where it's just waddling <laughs> like this thing, which again, this thing has no legs. I also under I don't understand how it eats so much because there's clearly no digestive tract. There's no way that it could possibly re release the food from its body unless it maybe just regurgitates it. I don't know. Lots of questions, more questions than answers. But this thing plops down on the ground and it is clunkily just bobbling across the floor breaking things in its hands it throws that dresser drawer and it's it's so like jarring because the movements are not at all smooth like it is, it is really horrible but it's so funny to watch like it really adds to it and there's that moment where it's 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 slamming the bed up and down on the floor <laughs> Just irate, just like just its face completely emotionless, just stopping the bed. Oh, I love this thing though, and uh, yeah, we don't get nearly enough stop motion in this movie. Give me a full hour of that thing just <laughs> causing chaos and havoc in stop motion glory. Oh, it's 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 fun. It's fun. It's absurd, but it's so fun to watch. Uh, the manager gets in the room just as it gets back into its basket. And we see that the room is completely destroyed. And they're like, what the fuck? He lets he lets some of the residents come in the room, including that O'Donovan who sees the wad of money lying on the floor. When everyone is cleared out from the room, you know, the manager's like, okay, everyone get out, get out. There's nothing in here. Get out. And everyone goes away from the room. That O'Donovan sneaks back out of his room picks the lock to go and get the money. This old fucker is stealing poor Dwayne's money. And it isn't enough to take the money. He starts to get like greedy. He's going through the drawers to, try, to look for more valuables. And then of course, Roger, he sees the basket. Curiosity. Greed gets the best of him because he lifts the basket open. And what the fuck does this thing do? Fucking jumps out of the basket, latches onto his face to the point where he falls out of, the room goes back into his room and the door shuts. And this thing, we just hear this thing tearing him apart as he's screaming. Jump cut to the two of them still making out under the Statue of Liberty. And I've got to point out, that is a very long time for them to have been kissing 
beneath the Statue of Liberty. Um, this thing managed to destroy an entire fucking bedroom, to break a television, and kill a man. And now they're still making out. But okay, he starts to sense that something's going on. And so you start to see that whole psychic connection come back into play. Um, and he starts to really panic. So you realize that he knows, oh shit, something something's amiss. So he's taken off back to get back to the hotel. But this whole moment of 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 the thing, the the blob creature, mauling this this O'Donovan's face, is really quite effective. It's it's a great little sequence. Uh, also very very bloody. And I do really like the involvement of all of the tenants of this hotel. Like if you're a secondary character, even if you're an extra in this film, you're gonna have a few moments. And they keep having these big scenes with these extras that adds to the chaos of all of it. People screaming, guys running out in their tidy whities looking looking pretty okay. Uh, you get a lot of different cultures. And again, this is part of why it feels so New York. All of these tenants, nobody looks like each other. Everybody looks like it's different and unique. Um, and, and I like these chaotic moments. I think they're some of the best scenes in the film, to be honest. Yeah, but it's but nobody like nothing ever comes of of what's going on. Like you just walked in and saw a room destroyed, and everyone's like, oh, "Okay, well, we'll just chalk it up to whatever." But then when they do hear that, you know, O'Donovan screaming bloody murder, the manager does run up with with a couple of the residents and goes into his room, and that we we see O'Donovan lying against his wall with his face just ripped open. And blood everywhere. There's that one woman screaming her fucking head off. Josephine's in there. Oh my God. Oh my God. But at the same time, like you said, uh, Dwayne has sensed this and he actually breaks away from Sharon to run back to his hotel. And he gets there and it's just chaos. Cops are there. They tell him that O'Donovan has been ripped to shreds. Uh, He's like, I I need to go up there. Sharon comes tagging behind him she's like and he grabs her violently pushes her out of the hotel he's like you can't be here didn't you hear what he said he killed o'donovan and i don't want him to kill you oh he gets so physical with this poor woman and i mean she's just obviously she just confessed that she really likes him i'll i'll be it a bit quick i think these are two lonely people lonely weird people who are just trying to find somebody and so she's you know already she's really seeming smitten with him. And he goes from, you know, this passionate, long kissing sequence to now just physically throwing this woman from the hotel and and pretty much avoiding her uh, to run back into the building. And you do get this brief moment where you're introduced to this detective that's on the case, um, who I would have liked to have seen a little more from, because he's actually rather um, engaging on camera. He's a really uh, nice presence. He's one of the better actors in the film, but there is not really a, there's not a police sub story here. There's not like a subplot. Uh, There's no kind of police procedural elements beyond this, um, which in some ways I appreciate that, but I thought this guy was kind of intriguing. I really thought he was going to be a bigger character than he ended up being. Well, yeah, he's questioning Dwayne. He's like, what happened to your room? And Dwayne's like, oh, that happened last night. We uh, went out for some burgers. He's like, we? Who are you? No, I went out for some burgers. And, you know, he's like, do you have any animals in here? No. Do you have anything else? Do you always leave money laying around? What? What? Here's, here's your money. And then, of course, the question of the movie is, what's in the basket? And the uh, police officer detective goes over and opens the basket and there's nothing in it. It's empty. And yeah. And the, the officer's like, Hey, do you mind if we have five more questions in a couple days, if I come back and talk to you and Dwayne's like, no, not at all. So the detective leaves 
And of course, when the officer leaves, he's looking around the room for whatever's in the basket. When we see behind him in the bathroom, Roger, this thing come out of the toilet bowl. <laughs> oh my God, this is fucking absurd. The hand just coming up out of the, the toilet. And then you have this whole moment here where where he has this like deep conversation with the creature. And again, it's that rubber puppet. It's not like, it's not like there's a hand in the actual thing, making it react. It's just blankly sitting there looking at him (laughs) as he has this deep, like emotional conversation with this thing. And then he proceeds to lift it up and dry it with a towel. And his little rubber arms are just like dangling. (laughs) It's it's, It's so absurd, but God damn, it's so fucking entertaining. But what's revealed here is this thing was angry with Dwayne that he lied to it and that he thinks that Dwayne is going to desert him for this girl. And Dwayne's like, no, I'm, I would never desert you. We'll always be together. And he's like, haven't I been with you since day one? Like this whole thing has been your plan, he tells it. And he's like, I've gone, I've gone along with it every step of the way. So why do you think I would desert you? And yeah, he picks it up, wraps it in a towel, gives it a hug. And then has a, hey, a reaction, Roger. Hey, I don't blame him one bit. What's he do? He goes to the fucking bar and gets drunk. Sensible. Sensible. And he has the fucking basket with him. And who does he run into? Our favorite girl. Fucking Casey. Yes. And she's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I just needed a drink. I don't even. He's drunk, obviously. And. Uh, she's like, listen, kid, you, why don't you come back to my table with me? I, I got some liquor and up to do, and you look like you need, you need a friend. So come back. So we cut to them at this back table. He has the basket in front of her and they are just drunk laughing about everything. You know, like they are, they are getting a, they are thinking anything that they say is the funniest thing ever. Like he tells her that he's a letter sorter. She's like, you're a mailman. And they just, ah, <laughs> and then finally. Finally, she's like, you know what? There's something I've been meaning to ask you. What's in the basket? And he says it's his brother. And of course, she's like, your brother? Ah, what is he, a midget? And she's, he says, no, no, but he looks like a squashed octopus. And we, he starts to get really serious. And you see the moment where she is like, wait, uh, what is going on here? Because he tells her, no, it's my twin. We were, we were Siamese twins and he basically then launches in to this whole story about the fact that he was born with a Siamese twin. They were the pariahs of the family. Nobody liked them. They, they, they were the freaks of the family. They were kept away from everyone. Uh, nobody cared about him except his aunt. And then we get this, this flashback, Roger, uh, elaborate flashback of the father first freaking out about his wife dying and that this thing killed its own mother. And the aunt is there and she apparently has told the father that he needs to come up with two names, not just one, because there's obviously another being attached to, to Dwayne. He's like, why would I come up with two names? That thing is a monster. It killed my wife. What a great setup to launch into all of this exposition. Like, this was the perfect time in the movie to want to learn more about, about, you know, the character of Dwayne and just the overall 
what's going on here? You know, it's time that some of these questions are answered. And this moment with Casey, it, it, it adds a lot for her, you know, because again, she's making herself available to him. She's having a great time with him. These two look like they're having a fucking hoot at this bar. Um, and, you know, he, he comfortably and naturally opens up to her. You know, he's drunk. Um, so obviously he's old enough at least to drink. Uh, but, you know, he he shares a lot with her. And yeah, at first it's, it starts as, as a joke. Like, she's laughing along and he's sharing these abs- absurd stories with her. And she thinks there's no way that this is possible. But then as he starts to share, he, he starts to just word vomit his life story to her. And it naturally transitions into this great flashback that gives you so much so much to go off of. It really sets up this, the bones of the movie. Uh, you understand how all of these characters come into play, both ones that are already deceased and ones that we're yet to actually, you know, experience. You know, we meet the the father for the first time. We meet the aunt, who you don't get a lot of time with her, but she. It's clear that she was the one person who really cared about both of these boys. Uh, and the little bit of time that we do get to see her, she's adamant about about you know defending both of them and making it clear that there are two of them, um, and she doesn't pass any judgment on them. And and that's something that they clearly carry with them. Um, but it, it's a really well-handled introduction to this backstory, and I like that we spend some time in this flashback. It is elaborate. It is one of the best sequences in the film, um, and it really gets you invested for what's to come. Well, and you also see that Casey's slowly realizing that this story could possibly be true. It's, her, her facial expressions are either, this is true, or this kid is really fucked up, and I misjudged him. But one of the flashbacks is, yeah, the aunt is uh, showing a social worker that has shown up to the house to approve homeschooling. And the social worker keeps referring to the child as just the boy. And the aunt, you're right, the aunt keeps correcting him and correcting her and says, no, there's two of them, it's boys. Uh, and as they get to his room, the social worker's like, well, can't he just have an operation? And the aunt says, well, it's really not that simple. And she opens the door to reveal young Kevin, probably about what, 12, 13 years old, sitting on his bed and he stands up and we get this full frontal scene of him standing there with the creature who we find out is named Belial attached to his side. And it's just like, eh, it's a little arms are waving and stuff. And of course this fucking social worker is horrified. This is a great reveal. I mean, when he stands up and he turns around to reveal this thing and it's moving and it's, you know, it's, it's face is twitching and it's, it's disgusting. It's one of the best effects in the movie. And you do get that great full body shot, you know, and, and the social worker whose forehead is gigantic, by the way, uh, but she's like freaking out and the aunt has to walk her out and you realize just how, um, how grotesque this is, you know, and, and, uh, you also understand so much about why up to this point Dwayne has been acting, or in some ways maybe it almost felt like un- underacting, uh, but he has this long relationship with this thing. This is his This is his twin brother. It's a Siamese twin brother. So he would be on a very casual basis with this thing, um, and he would have a very close-knit relationship to it. Uh, and so it just explains a lot, and it makes a lot of things that up to this point maybe felt a little awkward or not not so palatable um it makes them go down a lot easier and easier to accept overall over the course of the movie um but this is a great shot and um 
it's 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 actually quite sad what what's to come here. You know, it's it doesn't seem like he ever had a negative relationship with Belial. I don't understand how Belial's name is Belial though. Like when I hear the name Belial, I think that this thing is like an age old curse that's passed down through a jeweled necklace or something like that. But did they just name it Belial? Like was this thing born as an attachment to Dwayne, who has a very normal d- name like Dwayne, and then they say, oh, but we're going to name the growth Belial. For whatever reason, who came up with the name Belial? I don't know. That's why I, that's the question I've always wondered is you got Dwayne and then Belial. I, I, I don't know. Maybe because it does sound maybe medieval. I don't know. But yes, what we find out in this flashback as it proceeds is that we get this night where the father has three doctors over Roger. And what three doctors are they? Well, they're all the doctors that we met. They're they're uh, uh, doctors. Oh my God, they've all got weird names. The Dr. Cutter with her big hair. Yeah, we got Dr. Needleman and Dr. Leftletter are, are the three doctors that are in his house. And the the, the, the dad is adamant. He's like, you guys got to do this now. My, my sister-in-law's away, and this is the only time you can do it. And he's like, I don't care who found you. I don't care who sent you. Uh, I, I need you to do this operation. And of course, a couple of the doctors, the two male doctors are like, uh, I don't know. This is going to be real complicated. It's, the, it's Dr. Cutter who speaks up. And she says you know what? Dwayne does deserve a, a chance for a normal life. And the one doctor's like, yeah, but what about that? What about his brother? And she's like, doctor, I don't even think it's human. They don't share any organs. It's just tissue and flesh. So it should be relatively easy. So then we cut to them literally dragging, including his dad, dragging Dwayne from his bedroom. Uh, to the dining room where they have set up a makeshift op, uh, operating table and they throw him and Belial down on this operating table. And we get, I mean, it's pretty horrific. Uh, d- 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 despite how phony you want to say this looks like they, they sh- give uh, this Belial, they, sh- they shoot him up with, with a needle to put him to sleep. And he's screaming horrifically before he just goes limp. Well, and his brother is also fighting against you as well. Like they, neither of them want to be separated, which makes it, like I said, it gives it this really kind of sad undertone because it it seems like Dwayne and Belial are actually very close, both physically and emotionally. Um, But you see Dwayne like fighting against as the, as as he starts to get knocked out and, you know, come, um, the drugs start to hit. You do see him like come to again and start fighting it back again before he fully passes out. Uh, as they start to f- actually physically remove this thing, and yeah, like for for being something that is very much an, an effect, and again, clearly like a, a rubbery prosthetic effect. This whole creature is as one big puppet. This surgery sequence, this removal sequence, is is really rather nauseating i mean the effect is rather shocking you get the full incision you get these really meaty sound effects of just like the pulpy fleshy tearing as they're carving into him uh it's gross and as you start to see him get lifted off of like off of Dwayne's torso like you see this really disgusting seam where he was removed and it's just a bloody mess um it's rather impressive it really is it's truly impressive it is. It is. And it is Dr. Cutter that is like taking the lead on it. She's the one that actually performs the operation. She cuts him free. Um, and yeah, the sound effects, everything is just blood is everywhere. And it's just it's very uncomfortable to watch, particularly knowing that. Yeah, just a few minutes ago, they were both struggling because neither one of them want this because they did e- they did e- overhear the father's conversation about what was going to take place. So they knew this was coming. And for them to be violently dragged and forced to do this is just horrific. 
but that evening, Dwayne wakes up and he realizes his whole torso is covered with bandage bandages, and Belial is not attached to him anymore. However, he does hear him. He's like, Belial, is that you? So he gets up. He he's led towards where Belial's at. He goes outside to the back of the house, uh, and we find out that these doctors and this father just put Belial into a trash bag and threw him out with the trash. Oh this little moment with the little claw reaching out and like beckoning his brother over. Oh, it's it's actually kind of sad and like strangely touching in a way. They get the revenge because at some evening, at one point, the dad is woken up in the middle of the night to like sawing noises coming from the basement. And he slowly goes down into the basement to check it out. There's this moment where he steps on a nail, which looks pretty painful. He goes like, ow. But then he, he, he goes into this room where he it's Roger. This is basically an, an elaborate booby trap. They set up for him where they have one of those giant circular saw blades uh, and a circular saw attached to almost like a teeter totter thing. So that when the dad steps into this room, the, the, the wood thing that this circular saw is on comes up and it causes the circular saw to come uh, barreling down and literally just cuts this dad right in half. This is quite a setup and it's rather drawn out, which I like, though. It's actually a nice little moment of suspense um, and, and it works in this moment. Um, and again, this is a moment where I give him credit for trying because when you see this contraption, it's something right out of fucking saw. It literally, I mean, it literally is a, like a saw, but they've got like pitchforks attached to it. Like it's, you can tell that they constructed this thing with intentions to kill somebody with it. And the dad steps right into it. And you've got this moment where the thing like slides down at him. He gets violently knocked out of frame, and then it cuts to his legs standing completely still. So it's jarring. It is all—it's a jarring cut. Uh, it's a little sloppy. And then you've got these two rubbery feet where blood's like just dripping down, and they split. Like it's clear he's been split down the center, and he's supposed to drop. You know, his legs are separating and dropping either direction. Um, it would have done well to have some maybe some intestines dropping out. I don't know. It's—it's it's definitely lacking, but it's. I, again, I give them credit for trying uh, because it is a creative setup, um, but it is one of the more, um, uh, it's one of the scenes in the film that maybe just doesn't hit as, as strongly as I would have liked it to, but it's still a great setup. It's, it's a really fun sequence. Yeah, it's relatively bloodless for, for this dude literally being sawed in half with a circular saw. But yeah, I do like the build up because we are wondering what the hell is going to happen. And then when we see that the, that the two of them, or at least Dwayne went through this all this effort to build this booby trap, it's like, wow, you really, really, really wanted your your dad dead, huh? And I don't I don't blame him. I don't blame them. We we cut that back to now the aunt is now looking after both of them and she wants to take care of both of them she loves both of them there's even a moment where she's reading them a story and belial is sitting on her lap <laughs> just with its dead face expression just like it's so it's so so it's hard to take it seriously but i i love that this aunt cares about this thing <laughs> well then the aunt dies because we get a scene of her in her coffin as um Duane has to go look on um, but that's, that's the whole backstory. It's pretty fucking horrific. It's pretty fucking horrific. And now it makes perfect sense why Dwayne and Belial are in New York city, why they are targeting these doctors. And Casey has been told this whole story. So we don't know what she's thinking. All we know is that she, uh, we cut back to her, uh, taking Dwayne and the basket back to his hotel room. He's drunk as fuck to the point where he falls onto his bed. 
almost passes out, but then realizes he left Belial in the basket in the hallway. So he has to go and get the basket, set it back up on the dresser and go, goes back into bed. And Casey, I mean, after being told the story, I guess maybe I'd be curious too, but she decides that it's a good idea to look into this basket and she slowly creeps over and we, we are thinking, oh shit, we don't want to see Casey die. No, no, no. But she opens the basket and it's empty. There's this whole moment of her putting him into bed that's I think is so sweet. And a part of me upon first viewing was like, oh God, it's, it's going to go somewhere sexual. She's a prostitute. And again, it never does. And she puts him into bed. She lays him down. She's almost like taking on a maternal kind of figure for him, which I really like. Um, and then, you know, you have this moment. She lifts the basket. She looks inside. There's nothing in there. You as the viewer know, oh, fuck, this thing, all, it got out. And it's it got out in the hallway. And the way that this next sequence goes down, you really think Casey's going to be the next victim. Um, and they very much paint it to be the case because it's taken its time. She goes into her room. You have this long shot of her going into the bathroom and changing. Um, and I was dreading it. At this point, I already liked her enough that I was like, do not kill this character. Don't don't take her out of the story. She's got a Betty Boop-like quality that I like so much. And she's just so cute. And um, I'm, I'm really happy this plays out the way it does. But like, did you not think that this sequence was going to lead to her demise? Absolutely, Roger. I will tell you, I hadn't seen this film for a while and I totally forgot because it's been so long since I've seen this. I totally forgot that she doesn't die. So I was like, you know, I was dreading it. And in fact, for some reason in my memory, I thought she did die. I just remember somebody getting attacked, like one of the residents opening the basket and getting attacked and, and dying. So I, in my mind, I thought, oh shit, it's her. But no, she does not die. She does I mean, it's setting itself up that, I mean, she, she's, it's a long drawn out scene. You are right. She is, you know, she gets undressed. She puts her nightgown on, she gets into bed. She's lying in bed trying to get comfortable. And as she's like, you know, finally gets into her little spot, we see Belial, his hand come out from behind the, the, the pillows on her bed and touches her and she opens her eyes and luckily is able to get the fuck out of there because she runs out in the hallway down to the manager screaming fucking bloody murder that there's something in her room. It's trying to kill her. That manager that he goes up to her room. He goes in. Nothing is there. Of course, Josephine is like, you just stay with me tonight. And, and I'm sorry. I mean, I don't blame her. Casey's a fucking wreck. She is uh, hysterical. So she goes into Josephine's room to stay the night with her. The manager yells at everybody to go back into their room. And then we get this shot of Belial Roger getting back into his basket. But he also has the pair of underwear that Casey took off. Creepy. So creepy. And this that moment of her laying on the bed as you see that little fucking hand come out from behind the pillow. And then the pillow, the pillow like steps aside, moves aside to like reveal him just like sitting there. I was like, oh, God, like he's going to eat her fucking face off. But um, I'm, I'm happy it goes down the way it does. It is definitely creepy implying that he took those panties because much like this thing doesn't have a sphincter, it also clearly doesn't have genitalia. Um, so I don't know what it's doing. Maybe it's eating them. <laughs> Maybe it's just eating the panties. But um, it's luckily, it's not something that they really go too much 
deeper into. They more so, if anything, explore Belial's jealousy, that he doesn't want anything getting in between him and his brother. And we see a lot more of that. But this weird sexual, like, creeper undertone that's hinted at with this sequence, this is really kind of like the last of it. And I'm I'm okay with that. Uh, well, I mean, he does do something pretty horrific here coming up. That next morning, Dwayne wakes up. Uh, obviously a little hungover, but he knows what they have to do. They're on a mission. So he takes Belial uh, to the address that he found for Dr. Cutter. And we realize, Roger, she's not even a fucking human doctor. She's a veterinarian. Oh, I love that reveal, though. Like, I love that he literally went as as far as hiring a vet to remove his, his son from his other child. Like, it's just, it shows how shitty this father was, which I guess makes sense. If I saw that thing on my child, I would be like, what did I, what genetics do I have that created this monstrosity? Um, but still, like, I mean, to hire a veterinarian to perform that kind of surgery is twisted. Well, he goes into the office with the basket and, and basically has told everybody it's his cat. Um, and the cat has been cut. And one of the, we get these two twins, Roger, the double mint twins. Oh, you and me. <laughs> that's, that's our next photo shoot. You and me as those fucking twin sisters with their freckles and their just. <laughs> the long just, string. Oh hair. my yeah. God. I saw them and my eyes lit up. I, I thought in my head, Troy's going to have something to say about these two. I knew it. Oh, of course. I mean, they steal the show with their expressionless faces and. But yeah, so they let him go in to see Dr. Cutter and he basically, she's like, well, let me see the cat. And he says, well, it's really, if I'm being honest with you, it's not a cat. And she's like, oh, what do you mean? What is it then? And she's like, well, it's someone that Dr. Lifflander and you uh, successfully operated off of me. She's like, oh, it's you. Uh, Dr. Lift or Dr. Uh, Needleman told me about you and warned me about you. You should be thanking me. She's just a real cold hearted bitch. He says, you tried to kill my brother. Um, and she's like, you get your ass out of my office right now. But then Roger, she of course looks over and she's like, then what is in the basket? And she goes over and opens it and fucking Belial comes out and violently attacks this bra. This, this is probably the, you know, the best, um, the best kill in the entire movie. I mean, he is going to town, ripping her face. He like sticks his hand in her mouth and is like pulling her jaw down, like, like clawing at her tongue and mouth. Oh, this is one of the best fucking scenes in the film by far. Um, it, it starts off a little clunky because it has this really bad, really bad dubbing. Uh, and, and you're like, oh, fuck, like this sounds real wooden. But luckily it, it, it moves past that pretty quick. And once it starts to pick it up, it, it really all comes together very nicely. And this whole attack sequence where he starts, you know, wrestling with her, bringing her down to the ground. She's reaching for, um, you know, different, different utensils out of her drawer trying to grab scalpels to defend herself and she's all bloody uh those those identical twin nurses are they know something's up so they're getting worried they come trying to open the door and it's building to this really nice uh, suspenseful intense just 
violent peak. It's building and building because you don't know what's going to happen. She's still alive and she's trying to beat this thing off of her. Um, and when it hits this final reveal where the door opens and you see what ends up being her demise, this is one of the visuals from the film I've seen many times before but without having seen the film. I knew it was coming, but it makes for one of the, the most fun moments in a horror movie that I've seen in a long time. I love this big final moment that this doctor has. Uh, it's such a great visual and they like let they draw it out. Uh, and it's just, it's a great scene. It's really, really a good fucking scene. Yeah. Uh, what, what we see is like the, he, he gets Belial back into the, the basket as, uh, the twin, cause he knows the twins are about to burst in. So he gets Belial out and they get, they get out the other side of the room. And just as these twins bust in, they see the, they see Dr. Cutter look up at, at them and her, in her face are embedded several scalpels, uh, and cutting instruments, surgery instruments. And she's just lets out this agonizing scream and she, she's like reaching for them and she's like, ah! and these things are sticking out of her face. It's horrific. It is horrific. I remember seeing this as a kid and it fucking, I mean, I was like, Oh my God, it terrified me. It's horrific. Um, I mean, oof, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's this big drawn out scream moment where she just like sinks down out of frame and they they just they let it go there. They let it really like draw out the moment. And it really is, I think, the best kill in the movie. Um, But now, like, I mean, he's he barely gets out. He's on the run, but but people are on to him, you know, like at this point. Uh, he's definitely going to be suspected for being associated with this. He's the last one to go into that room. He manages to get out of the clinic, but like it's pretty clear that he's going to have to be on the run. Um, and this point forward, this movie picks up the pacing quite a bit. Um, you know, it's moving into the final stretch of the, the film, and it really gets pretty fucking exciting. Well, yeah, he rushes back to his hotel, and as he gets there, fucking Sharon is there waiting for him, and she chases him down to tell him. My God, Dr. Needleman, he's been murdered. I don't know what to do. I need to be with somebody. I don't want to be alone. And you're the only person I thought of. So he hesitantly takes her up to his room. Um, and she's like, I, I've, I'm so shattered. I, I had to be the one to identify the body. But all I've been able to think about all day is you. And this is when they like literally... He sets the basket down and they start to make out on the bed. Like they get on the bed. He gets on top of her, kisses her, like takes her boobs out and everything. And she's like, take me Dwayne. And they are getting ready to fuck Roger. When suddenly fucking Belial again, he jumps out of that fucking basket, screaming his fucking head off. He does not want Sharon to see. So he literally like holds her down violently so she can't get up to see. He wraps this bitch in a comforter and throws her ass out in the hall. <laughs> okay. If I was Sharon Troy, I would be done by this point. The things that have happened to this poor woman, and I mean, just the mystery of all of it alone. Like, she's like, what is that? She, she is horrified. And there's this moment where psychically, I think, I think uh, that Dwayne is almost like, entranced by whatever is going on because his brother's mounted up on the table just screaming on top of that basket and there's a moment where he's on top of her and he just he he's completely still he doesn't move he won't let go of her and so she's wrestling with him and finally he snaps to it and he just wraps her in that fucking sheet and he just launches her out the door and she comes right back and she's like screaming for him and i would just i would be hauling it out of there troy there's no way in hell i'm coming back for more this woman 
somehow, some way, she must really love this guy. I thought they just got to know each other, but okay. Uh, and finally, she just takes off running down the steps, overwhelmed, understandably so, because she just saw that monstrosity screaming at her. But this poor girl, I mean, she's really... She gets the short end of the stick in this movie, this poor Sharon. She doesn't do anything wrong to anybody. Like, <laughs> like she's just trying to help. And what happens coming up here is really sad. Yeah, she she should have been done, you know, a while ago. Like, when he violently threw out of the, uh, the hotel that first time she came, you know, with him there after uh, that old man was killed. He, she should have been done there because he was certainly violent with her. Um, and they don't like, she's like, Oh, you're all I thought about all day. How you've met each other one time. Like it's, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. But she's thrown out of the, the hotel. Dwayne angrily pushes Belial back in the, his basket screaming. Why? God damn you. God damn you. Why? Oh God. The, 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 he is so pissed off and understandably so, because I think he's realizing like, as long as his brother's alive and around, his brother like expects him to be completely a hundred percent devoted to him. Um, and I think this is the first time that Dwayne's ever gotten to experience life outside of his brother. And he's just like having a taste of it. He wants to be able to live a life for himself. He even says, he's like, is this going to happen every time I have a girlfriend? Like, am I ever going to be able to have a normal life? And like, understandable, like understandable that he would be rebelling against his brother at this point. Yeah. Well, and that night Belial gets out of his basket and this is when we get the red eyes is I don't know what this is supposed to be signifying Roger. Like he goes over to Dwayne, he's looking at Dwayne and all of a sudden his eyes go red. Is this supposed to be some more intense psychic thing or what? I don't, I don't know what this is. Yeah. The red eyes I could have done without, um, I think it was taking it to a fantastical place. Like I mean, I, I say it didn't need to go there, but like, let's also consider that we're talking about like literally a, a Siamese tumor of a, of a <laughs> creature <laughs> with little claw arms, like that's completely sentient, able to knock doors down. So maybe I'm, I'm reaching with this, but the glowing eyes just seemed like an unnecessary addition. Um, but okay, whatever. I mean, like I'll roll with it. Yeah. I, I, I could, I didn't. I could not figure out what it signified though, what the purpose was of it. So I was confused by that, but it re reaches for Dwayne. And in a moment we do think, I mean, I think it's setting up that we think that this thing is going to like kill Dwayne while he's sleeping, but instead it just like jumps out the window and screams and goes out the window. We cut to the scene, Roger of Dwayne having a dream that he is running down the streets of New York city and again, Roger, keep in mind, they, they did not, they filmed this like guerrilla style. This was not like, there was no like uh, sectioning off streets so they could film this. Was, this was all done guerrilla style. They have him running down the streets naked. He's butt ass naked. I mean, we see his dick flopping up and down as he's jogging completely naked. He, I mean, his giblets and his niblets are flipping and flopping and they're little and tiny and that's all fine because this is, this is so... This is such an unexpected turn of events for this to go full frontal nudity was the last place I expected you to go. Like there was even a moment earlier where they had it where that like Casey almost had like a topless sequence. Like she changed out of her like day wear into her nighty. She took off her panties, but they didn't even show like her chest. And so to suddenly get a full frontal male running sequence is the last thing I was prepared for. And I like, I like... <laughs> I spit out my soda and I fell back on my couch and I said, what the fuck? Because yeah, this guy's just full on in the middle of of New York. I'm assuming uh, running through open streets, through alleys, 
butt-ass naked. This guy's got some cojones. Um, good for him for going there, but I can't believe that this production expected this from this man. <laughs> oh, they did. I really believe this was probably the first like on-screen full frontal male nudity I ever saw in a film. Um, I, I'm pretty sure it was, and I was like, wow, because this was just wasn't very common back in those days to see male full frontal nudity. Female, yeah, yeah, we all know that, but full frontal male nudity on display, not just on display, but like running and flopping. And I mean, I was like, whoo. Yeah, it was shocking. And um, I mean, I, I'm all about male nudity, but this is not a sexy male nudity, which is how I do like my full frontal nudity. Like if I'm going to see someone butt ass naked, uh, let it be something that shocks and startles me um, more so than anything erotic. I like when nudity is used for discomfort. And though I'm confused as to why they included it here is it memorable and does it make this moment stand out to me like yeah absolutely i'm i'm assuming roger that he is supposed to be like sensing what belial is Mm -hmm. doing right belial is we know for a fact belial is on his way to sharon's apartment with sex definitely on his mind so i'm assuming this dream of him running down the street of new york of new york naked is mirroring what belial's doing at the moment because he in his dream he does get to her apartment naked he goes in while she's lying on her bed naked herself her big old fucking titties those big old fucking melons do we want to stop and acknowledge those i mean those are some flapjackers if ever i saw them they're big old titties and i was really shocked that she had that hiding under all those blazers she's been wearing but good for her this poor woman um and earlier i said that they really don't dive back into him being a sexual creeper i mean obviously this is um i like that they don't make it something where he's just raping women left and right like it's something that they hinted it and now here you've got this moment that definitely you're right has a sexual undercurrent um and and does really play into the jealousy factor, but also I think in Belial's own like curiosities and intrigues with wanting to like experience a woman himself, it does make for a rather horrifying moment and a really honestly sad moment with what's to come here. Well, in his dream, he's grabbing those titties and squeezing them. Honking them. Honk, honk. But he he wakes up, Roger, and I think he realizes what the dream is that he's having. And he gets up real quick. Immediately he goes over to Belial's basket and finds him missing or finds Belial missing. And then we cut to real time Sharon's apartment. She wakes up in the middle of the night, sensing something Belial Roger is on top of her and she screams and he grabs her by the throat violently and proceeds to, I'm a, what does he do? Does he, how does he rape her without any genitalia? He does something to her. I mean, she's screaming and all of a sudden she goes limp and he's like making these horrible noises like he's enjoying it. And Dwayne has made his way to the apartment by now. When he runs in, he sees Belial on top of her and he pulls Belial off. And did you notice that her puss area is all covered in blood? I'm very confused by this moment. I'm confused by a lot of things. I'm confused by how he kills her. I mean, I guess maybe he suffocated her. It's real quick. Maybe he broke her neck. I don't know. But yes, like you think it's a relatively bloodless moment. And then you see that he's just sitting there rocking in it. The blood around her crotch that's dripping down her legs. And you're like, wait a minute. First of all, you're disgusted. But then you're like, wait, wait, is there a, is, did he? How? But how, though? It's I don't understand how. And, I mean, it's a gross in concept, but because you don't know how it could have happened, I guess it makes it a little less gross. Um, but I do. I guess you're right. I do think he raped this woman. I just don't understand how it's possible. 
Uh, he has okay, so I'm just gonna cut forward to the sequel because he does apparently have a penis because in the sequel he has sex and in part three he has a baby or he has babies. Don't ask me, but uh, but I don't know where it's at. I mean, does it come out of his just just comes out of his bottom? I I, I don't know. This confused the hell out of me. But he he does shove Belial back in in the basket. And I mean, he obviously is not happy. He runs back to the hotel and he's violently, violently smashing the basket against the wall and screaming, never again. I'll kill you. I'll kill you to the point where he's he's so violent. Roger, he is he wakes everybody up and they follow him up to his room. They go. I mean, he Dwayne goes in his room. He's throwing this basket around and the group following behind him. All of a sudden, Roger Belial fucking pops out of that basket, grabs Dwayne by his fucking nuts and lifts him into the air. This moment is completely unexpected. Um, I mean, I knew we were getting close to the finale, but like, I like that everyone's breaking in. I like there's all this commotion. It's really this big finale moment. Everyone, like the whole cast is there. Casey's screaming and this this whole shot of this thing lifting this guy by his crotch. I mean, it's impressive. I don't know how this thing did it. I don't understand how this thing has the upper body strength to pull this off, but somehow it managed to lift this young man by his crotch, but it does make for a really great, like, I mean, not final shot, but like for a big final moment, they kind of pulled out all the stops and everything that happens here with him, like going out the window, hanging from the sign, from the hotel sign, like, what a what a strong symbolic finale this is uh, in a lot of ways. And I just love that everyone's involved in it. And it builds to this really big climactic moment. I mean, yes, this I would say this ending is definitely iconic for sure. For sure. I mean, it, yeah, I'm wondering how is this thing so fucking strong? But it literally has Dwayne lifted at least four feet off the ground. Everyone's screaming until it throws him down on the ground. Belial throws Dwayne on the ground. And before Dwayne can do anything, Belial leaps onto his face, causing them both to fall fucking backwards out the fucking window, breaking the window. They fall out this window, the third floor we've been told. And everyone is screaming. Casey's freaking out. Um, And then we see the exterior shot that Belial has them literally hanging onto the hotel Broslin sign that has been so prominently featured throughout the film. Belial is hanging on by his little arm and he's holding Dwayne by the throat, not realizing that Dwayne is choking to death. I mean, this scene of these two things hanging from the sign again, iconic, iconic. I just didn't think that this film was going to be able to pull off this, this grand of a spectacle. I mean, obviously all the puppeteering has been really great. Um, and, and, you know, even in its flaws and, low budget and mishaps and you know overall there have been certain things that felt like they were somewhat lacking but it's like i said it's added to the charm all along whole time it just adds to the charm and then you get this big final moment and you can tell like they were really they really pick and chose like where they put their money in this because this had to be a pretty big moment for them to pull this off and you know you've got all these extras on the ground hookers looking up and seeing it happen and then he drops you know he drops to his death and you've got all these people standing around looking at him as josephine mourns against the window and it really is a phenomenal conclusion and a really great way to take this movie out on a a, with on a bang i mean really it it ends on such a strong note so yeah um really really impressive conclusion to this film i'm really happy with the film overall but how many films have we watched that have sputtered out and died and ended on a note that felt unsatisfying 
not with this one, man. I mean, they really saved it for the end. They did. They did. Uh, yeah, those those hookers, those horrible hookers that are on. What's that? What's that? And everyone gathers around. And yeah, poor Belial. I feel bad. You know, it's hard to feel bad for Belial. But like in this moment, I kind of do because God damn, he's trying to hang on for dear life. You hear him like grunting and you know he's trying to hang on. He's trying to hang on. But at the end, he just can't. And his hand slips. And yeah, they both tumble three floors down, landing on the cement. Belial head first. And yeah, this, this group gathers around them as we see they're just bloody limp bodies on the cement. That's it. The credits start to roll and what a ride we were on. Oh, it, it really was a, a grand conclusion. And when those credits start to scroll over the, um, over the visual of all of the people gathered around their corpses, like their unmoving corpses or so we believe, cause I do know they, they, you know, obviously he returns for the sequel. It really ends on a strong note. The one thing I would have liked would have been to maybe see a conclusion moment with Casey because she had shown or shared so many moments with him. And we do see her react in the room. She does scream as he goes out the window. But um, I'd almost wish that it would have been her in place of Josephine uh, looking down from the window and and mourning him because uh, they seem to have really had a connection. And I, I appreciated her character so much. But overall, if that's my only complaint, I mean, that really... That ain't bad. No, and I agree, but I'm I'm satisfied. And I, I really I'm glad you brought up the sequel. I've brought up the sequels as well. You haven't have you seen either of the sequels, Roger? I'm assuming no. No, I have not, no. Okay, so I want to uh, on our I want to bring this up. On our Patreon last week, we experimented with something new and it was doing a commentary, like a live commentary on a film where we and me and Roger, we started the film at the same time and we just kind of provided a, a, a running commentary on it. And the first film we started out with was my film teacher shortage that Roger was in just because we felt like it would be a really uh, easy way to, to, to break the ice into something new. I would love for our next commentary on our Patreon to be basket case two. Oh. Um, I really would. I am not saying I'm happy with basket case two. I'm not. I I want to do it because I want to know your reaction. If you're going to react to it as kind of negatively as I did at first, because first of all, I just want to say this ending was perfect. It should have ended. There should not have been a basket case too. Uh, It's it's unbelievable that both of these people survived that fall from that sign. First of all, especially when you see Belial land head first onto the cement. But Basket Case 2, Roger, all I'll say about it, and if you agree to do the commentary, then great. But uh, all I'll say about it is, like, I don't know why you would take something like the first film that is so gritty, so just, you know, grimy, gritty. It has that, you know, disgusting New York City feel and then turn it into, like, something comedic and comic book like. I I don't know. I feel like the, the Basket Case 2 and 3 are when you compare them to the first ones are probably two of the big, biggest missteps ever in a franchise. Mm, Wow. 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 Well, now that that definitely makes me eager to see them and eager to give a commentary. But I will say with that said, I will say that I will say they are entertaining as fuck. But when you look at them as companion pieces to this first one and how this first one has such a cult following because of its grittiness, they're highly, highly disappointing. They're fun. They're fun, but the tone completely shifts. They turn. They turn Dwayne into like this goofball character. Um, it's. I want to do a commentary with the second one with you. Okay, sign me up. The first one deserves its cult status. 
Um, it deserves the iconic imagery that's been attached to it. It deserves its its place as a uh, as an indie horror film, a low budget indie horror film that really, really, really broke the mold. And um, I, I'm glad that the director Henry Lauder was able to achieve a lot of success after this because I know that he, you know, this was his directorial debut. He basically used his life savings to make this money. Took a big risk on it. Um, and I, I'm glad it, it paid off for him. Um, and he, it, obviously he's a, he's a filmmaker that maybe doesn't get talked about as much as he, he needs to be because he has done some really good stuff in the genre. He did Frankenhooker. He did brain damage. I mean, he's done stuff outside of basket case that has been recognizable and made an impact. Yeah, no, I, I'm really, really happy you selected this title, Troy. I've, I've been aching to see it for years, years and years and years. And, and honestly, it just has never aligned until you, you know, you put it uh, fully on my radar because of the podcast. And isn't that what we're here for, you know, to talk about movies we love, but also to have our, our minds opened up to titles that maybe we've never seen prior. So this is definitely one of the ones that I'm very grateful that I've seen uh, because of you. And, um, you know, I can't wait to, to check out the sequels just because of what you've said. Also, from some of the things I've read as well, um, I just I can't imagine, you know, where they're going to take it. So sign me on up. I am ready to do a full on commentary for the sequel. Amazing, because they're both they're both available, so we can definitely do it. Um, but yeah, guys, that's our thoughts on Basket Case. What are your thoughts on Basket Case? Do you think it deserves its cult status? Uh, do you love the movie? Do you hate the movie? I can't imagine there's people that hate the movie, but they might be out there. Every every episode that we release, I'm surprised by some of the comments that we get on the films that we cover, um, whether it's from people loving it or hating it. But I would be curious to hear your guys' thoughts on Basket Case. And if you want to hear us do a live commentary on the sequel and possibly part three at some point in the near future, join our Patreon, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast. The last when I uploaded Roger, when I uploaded the teacher shortage commentary, that was our, that was our, and I think this is going to floor you. That was our 109th uh, bonus episode. We have 109. I know we have 109 episodes on Patreon guys, bonus episodes that you guys could listen to. If you enjoy listening to us, you've listened to all of our mainstream episodes, 109 are up there for you to dig your ear balls into. Uh, you add that on top of the 127 episodes we've done in our main feed. Holy shit, man. Oh my God. But uh, hey, I love every minute of it. And I love the I love what's to come as well. Because we got some good ones coming down the pike. We do. And we're about ready to hit almost 130 episodes, Roger. But I want you, because it's the next episode or the next film we cover is your pick. So why don't you tell the audience what film you selected for us to cover next absolutely i am um, i've selected for my next entry i decided to, i decided to bring it back down to earth with something a little bit drier but then it's also something very sci-fi and absurd so uh, i think it'll appease the match the masses and i also like to think that it's going to be something that's maybe a little a little more unique uh, trying to pick something a little more obscure. So I did pick the 1976 sci-fi horror, uh, God Told Me To, um, which, you know, I, I do think is um, very unlike our last few choices. I'm trying to balance them out. I'm trying to do one that's always a little absurd and one that's maybe a little more of just a, a, a film that I'm intrigued by. And so I'm excited to discuss this one because it's very much a, a different tone. 
I will say, Roger, um, great pick because much like Basket Case for you, this is a film that I've heard about for years, years. This is a film that um, I remember seeing on the shelves of my local video store in the horror section uh, many, many years ago. But with that said, it's also a film that I've never seen. Wonderful, because I've never seen it either. So this will be a rare scenario where neither of us have seen the title and we are both going in blind, which are some of my favorite reviews because uh, to do with you because it's rarely the case. I know Larry Cohen directed it. Um, I, I, I guess it just never sounded intriguing to me, particularly when I when it was revealed that there was a sci-fi element to it. I'm like, eh. but I am going to be highly thrilled to check it out because like I said, I've never seen it. You've never seen it, which is surprising. Um, but yeah, guys, if you've seen God told me to be prepared because we have not. So it's sure to be a highly uh, engaging, hopefully conversation. But yeah, next week, God told me to check out our Patreon. If you haven't done so, five-star rating on Apple podcasts would be amazing. And I mean, I guess we'll just leave you with what are we leaving them with, Roger? <laughs> I, I really want to. I want you to play a repeat of you creating the sound effect of that thing screaming from earlier. Is what, what I'd like to end it on. Oh. Uh, <laughs> One of the best impersonations I've ever heard, Troy. Thank awesome. you. <laughs> All right, guys. With that, have a good night, and we'll see you next week. With God told me to. <laughs> Goodbye.